The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Starting any podcast, no matter the genre, requires dedication. But for true crime especially, research is the most essential ingredient. An excellent true crime podcast requires a great deal of investigation to tell a compelling story, which listeners like you deserve. Our goal is to take you deep into the inner minds of the players, from murderers to witnesses to the victims themselves, to get the most exciting information. We must not only dig deep below the surface to find new stories, court dockets, and case files, but we seek to conduct our own interviews with as many witnesses as possible to paint as accurate of a picture of the case that the victims deserve. For a good episode, we need first to uncover the details of the crime, including the what, when, where, why, and who, and all the elements that make the crime unique. As we unravel the crime in such a way that reads like a good mystery novel, with twists and turns that keep you as listeners hooked until the end, it is the who that matters most. That human element that draws us in and provides a common connection allowing us all to relate. So as we dig into these files and uncover as many names as possible, our skilled researchers then do their utmost to track down the voices and stories behind those names. Now we all love a good true crime story, but most of us, for good reason, prefer that unfortunate story to have occurred afar. Nearly no one wants that story to hit too close to home, because if it does, it might be your phone you find ringing, with one of our highly talented researchers on the other end to greet you. And there is no denying that the immediate response we often get is, how did you find my number? In this day and age, almost anyone can be found online because your private information is no longer private. In today's world, the risk of being tracked online is a significant concern. Anyone, like a coworker, a new online date, or even a stranger can pose a threat if they gain access to your personal information. Your personal information is already exposed whether you like it or not. In fact, the average person, including you, will have over 2,400 pieces of personal information exposed online over the next two years. Your online reputation is everything, and 40% of information data brokers have on 
some people is inaccurate. This could mean lost job opportunities, higher insurance premiums, or even wrongful arrest. And after hearing our podcast, we all know this could lead to something much darker. And everyone knows that is not a risk you should be willing to take. But did you know there is a legit way to make your personal data yours again? Spooner for Gothic has partnered with number one personal data removal service, Delete Me. Since 2011, Delete Me has made it quick, easy, and safe for listeners like you to remove your personal data online. But how does Delete Me work? Well, it's quick and easy. You just sign up at joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river and submit your personal information for removal from search engines. Next, the removal process begins as Delete Me experts find and remove your personal information, and you will then receive a detailed Delete Me report within seven days. And that's not it. Delete Me experts will continue to scan and delete any detected personal information every three months throughout the year. Since 2011, Delete Me has saved users over 54 years. That's 20,000 hours of required effort to remove personal information from online sources. Delete Me has developed the most comprehensive, thorough, and transparent information removal product on the market. And that is why PCMag.com named Delete Me Excellent, the most outstanding product in its category. With an average rating of 4.7 out of 5 stars, Delete Me has over 800 plus reviews and an A plus rating by the Better Business Bureau. So know that you can trust this industry leader in online personal data removal. Also, the Delete Me team is always there to help you and prides itself on its outstanding customer service and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. The Delete Me team is not happy if you're not happy. Your privacy is their business. So join Delete Me now risk-free at joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river because no one wants to be a victim or a suspect so get protected before it's too late and next time that case hits too close to home you will not find yourself asking that strange person on the other end of the line how did you find my number again that's joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river Chapter 62 At the Hands of the State In 1998, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was given four life sentences by a federal judge plus 30 years after Kaczynski accepted a plea agreement that spared him the death penalty. The man who bombed the World Trade Center in 1993, Ramzi Ahmed Youssef, was sentenced to life in prison. A life sentence was meted out to Terry Nichols, convicted in the Oklahoma City bombing, which killed 168 people. The FBI arrested suspected serial killer Tony Ray Amati, who was on their 10 most wanted list. An aggressive lottery accountant, Matt Beck, killed four people at the Connecticut State Lottery. In Jonesboro, Arkansas, two students aged 11 and 13 opened fire against teachers and students at Westside Middle School. The event became known as the Jonesboro Massacre, and five people were killed, with another 10 wounded. American assassin and killer of Martin Luther King Jr., James Earl Ray, passed away. Matthew Shepard, a gay Wyoming student, was fatally beaten in a hate crime. Two officers were killed when Russell Eugene Weston Jr. ran into the United States Capitol and opened fire. Later, he was deemed too incompetent to stand trial. And a new murder trial was sought in a Canton, Illinois double homicide case. As Donald R. Bowles' attorney told the Supreme Court, a juror was biased.
March 10th, Peoria Journal Star, Springfield. The Illinois Supreme Court was asked Monday to order a new trial for Donald Bull Jr., who was on death row for killing a Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter, then setting their apartment on fire to cover up the murders. In oral arguments before the court, attorney Stephen Clark of the State Appellate Defender's Office said Bull had been denied an impartial jury when he was tried for the January 13, 1993 murders of Donna Tompkins, 30, and her daughter, Justine. Clark said that Bull was denied the right to be present during a critical part of jury selection. A Hancock County jury in 1996 found Bull guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated arson, and two counts of concealment of a homicide. Bull was convicted of strangling or smothering the victims, but he maintained his innocence. Clark told the Supreme Court that a juror who ended up serving as forewoman in the trial was biased against Bull and should not have been seated on the jury. During the interview in the trial judge's chambers that took place just before the opening statements, the woman told the judge and attorneys on both sides that a co-worker had mentioned the Bull case to her and had said that Bull had done that before. In the same interview, the woman said she didn't believe she could be impartial if evidence showed that Bull and Tompkins had been involved in an abusive relationship, Clark said. Assistant Attorney General Penelope George, who asked the High Court to uphold Bull's conviction and sentence, agreed with Clark that Bull wasn't present when the juror made her remarks. But Bull and his attorneys were given a chance to have the juror excused, and they did not, George said. Bull's attorneys consulted with him, and they agreed to accept the woman as a juror. In one of his arguments on Bull's behalf, Clark told the justices that the death penalty is unconstitutional because it is inevitable that an innocent person will be executed, referring to the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. Clark said, There is no more cruel and unusual punishment than the execution of a person who is innocent. George said the argument that the death penalty is unconstitutional does not hold water. The fact that the judicial system is imperfect doesn't mean that capital punishment is unconstitutional, she said. The Supreme Court took the case under advisement and will issue a ruling later. Now before we dive in, ladies and gentlemen, I feel it would be adequately judicious to name those claims Donnie made in his post-conviction relief motion before his Supreme Court hearing. The petition states that Donnie is indigent and therefore unable to retain counsel, and asks the Supreme Court and asks the Supreme Court for a state appellate defender to represent him on this petition. The petition states that Donnie has no way of investigating or researching possible post-conviction claims without post-conviction counsel. The petition goes on to claim that Donnie's defense counsel had failed to investigate and introduce testimony that Donnie had in fact found the ring that prosecution witnesses said had been taken during the murder when Donnie moved into an apartment in 1992 before the murders. Donnie believes that David Nell, Kim Finley, Rick Liddy, and Gloria Riley could have also testified. The petition states that his defense counsel failed to impeach Chris Chester with his prior inconsistent statements to the police that are contained in the police reports or with testimony that Chester was biased against him because Donnie refused to take the blame for Chester's possession of a homemade knife in his prison cell. Donnie states his defense introduced inaccurate mitigation 
and that his counsel had failed to inform him of the jury request during deliberations for a key that was not admitted into evidence, and his counsel had failed to object to his absence when the court formed the response to the jury request. He said his counsel failed to object to his absence when Juror McCormick informed the court of her bias against men who may have abused women and that she had been told that Donnie had done this before. And that his counsel failed to object to Ionel Price's testimony that she had told Donna Tompkins not to be alone with him. And that his counsel failed to object to John Tompkins' testimony about his relationship with his daughter and his reaction to learning of the murders. And of his counsel's failure to investigate alibi witnesses who lived in the area of Oak and Second and Canton and his counsel's failure to seek dismissal of the charges based on perjury before the grand jury by Officer Ayers as to the content of Donnie's statements about where he had been at the time of the murders, and as to the ability of the jeweler to identify the ring recovered from him as a ring shown on the photo of Donna Tompkins, and that his attorney Dean Stone was seriously ill during the trial and sentencing and was unable to properly prepare and participate as a result and his counsel had failed to impeach Jacqueline Day with her prior inconsistent statements to police, and failed to question Rochelle Hillmeyer and Misty Harbor as to whether Day told them about seeing Hillmeyer's car as Day testified, and that his counsel had failed to confer with him in a manner consistent with the gravity of the capital case, and that his counsel had failed to inform him that the autorads from the DNA testing didn't match until trial, and his counsel failed to have the defense DNA expert run tests on the DNA when the autorads didn't match and that his counsel misled him on the defense of the case, and they misled him as to the number of defense witnesses that would be called. And his counsel failed to object to the prosecution's closing argument that the defense experts were fast-talking and doing a little song and dance and insulting the jury's intelligence, and that his counsel failed to inform him that a single juror could spare him from the death penalty. Had Donnie known this, he would not have waived a jury for the death penalty hearing, he states and that his counsel had failed to investigate all allegations that Hillmeyer's car was in front of the Bork junkyard, and his counsel had failed to talk to employees of the junkyard, as Donnie had requested, and that his counsel had failed to investigate the allegations that his car was parked near the dairy building by asking the employees of the Weirco gas station, and Donnie asked counsel to check with the gas station employees since the storage tanks for the station are behind the station near the dairy building, and that the employees check the tanks each morning and that his counsel had failed to object to the family picture of the victim that was shown to the jury to show the ring. After the picture was shown to a witness, it was placed by the witness stand, facing the jury, every day. Donnie told counsel about this many times and asked counsel to object, but his defense team did nothing. And Donnie states that his counsel failed to investigate the four different kinds of accelerants tested in the federal lab, since Donnie believes the finding of four different accelerants to be suspicious. Donnie states that his Sixth Amendment rights to effective assistance of counsel on appeal was violated by appellate counsel's failure to raise on direct appeal any of the errors claimed in the post-trial motions, including that his appellate counsel failed to argue on appeal that the court had improperly communicated with the jury about the request for a key that was not admitted into evidence without Donnie's knowledge, that the appellate counsel had failed to challenge the admissibility of DNA testing results and methods, that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the admission of portions of Donnie's letter to Mike Price, that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the testimony concerning Donnie's use of marijuana, that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the rebuttal testimony of Mr. Franks on DNA when trial counsel's objection was overruled, that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the admission of the testimony of Brio Clear, that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the testimony of Jennifer Hahn pertaining to the number of sperm found in the vaginal swab, 
that the appellate counsel failed to challenge the victim impact statements at the death penalty hearing, that the appellate counsel failed to argue that the judge refused to consider mitigation when the judge stated that the academic and childhood problems of Donnie were not mitigation, that the appellate counsel admitted an argument that the court had unfairly considered that Donnie had committed a rape when there was no evidence of rape, that the appellate counsel failed to argue that Donnie had been denied his counsel of choice when Donnie waived his first appointed counsel's conflict of interest, that the appellate counsel should have argued that it was unfair to allow the prosecution to have a police officer witness remain in the courtroom when the court would not allow the defense DNA expert to remain in the courtroom during the testimony of other witnesses, that the appellate counsel failed to argue that it was an error to allow the jury to have the indictments during deliberation, that the police intimidated and tampered with Donnie's trial witnesses in violation of due process of law, that one of the key prosecution witnesses, Chris Chester, committed perjury when he testified that no promises had been made to him in return for his testimony, and Donnie believes that the prosecution or the police made a deal with Chester, and that the failure of the prosecution to reveal that deal violated due process of law, and that the other informant, Harold Crozer, may also have concealed promises made to him in return for his testimony. And lastly, that the prosecution had a conflict of interest and that the prosecution had a professional relationship with one of the initial suspects in the case, David Haynes. Both David Haynes and the state's attorney Ed Danner are officers of the Fulton County Bar Association. This information should have been provided to the defense in discovery. Mr. Danner should have been recused from the prosecution once Haynes was suspected by investigators. Wherefore, it is respectfully requested that Donnie's convictions and sentence be vacated and that he be granted a new trial, resentencing, or a sentence other than death. Once Donnie had acquired a new defense team for his appeal, they were able to track down and take down post-conviction statements made by a few jurors to be submitted as exhibits for the justices to review concerning potential biases. Exhibit 16. My name is Betty Thompson, and I was a juror in the Donald Bull trial. I recall the jury discussing the following during jury deliberation. A. At least one juror informed the jury that she noticed Bull was left-handed. The jurors looked at the crime scene photos and determined by the burn marks on the floor that the fire could have been started by a left-handed person. B. I recall bringing up the fact that Bull did not testify during the deliberation and it bothered me that he didn't. I wondered why, if he was innocent, he did not testify. I am not sure if this took place before or after the vote, but it was during the deliberation. C. The fact that Bull did not make eye contact with the witnesses bothered me a lot. I mentioned this during deliberation. D. The jurors discussed the fact that the photographs of Donna Tompkins' garage showed gasoline cans and that he could have used them to set the fire. E. The photograph of the crime scene convinced me that Donna Tompkins had been raped by the way her legs were positioned. Exhibit 17. I swear the following is true and accurate. My name is Alice Varner and I was a juror on the Donald Bull case. I recall the following about the trial and deliberations. A. I believe the fact that Donald Bull knew where the victim's key was, was convincing evidence. B. The crime scene photographs convinced me of the fact that the victim had been raped by the position of her legs. 
C. I recall one of the jurors during deliberations thought that Donald Bull should have testified on his own behalf to help convince them of his innocence. D. Although I don't remember saying anything in deliberations, I felt that way too, that he should have testified if he was innocent. E. I thought David Nell's testimony was very important. My name is Ruth Atkinson, and I was a juror on the Donald Bull trial. I recall the jury discussing the following during jury deliberations. A. More than one juror suggested that the gas may have come from the garage in the photograph that was presented in the evidence. I thought it didn't matter where the gas came from. B. Near the beginning of the trial, one of the jurors made a comment with the implication that because Donald Bull didn't make eye contact, he must have had something on his conscience. The other jurors agreed. C. During deliberations, some of the jurors discussed Bull's failure to testify. D. The crime scene photos proved to me that the victims were dead before the fire was started. E. I personally did not take Bull's failure to testify into consideration, but I believe some of the other jurors thought that an innocent person would have testified. F. I thought the DNA evidence was very convincing. Exhibit 19. My name is Stephen Berry, and I was present during an interview with Catherine Knowles, which took place at her home on August 19, 1998. I recall Catherine Knowles discussing the following during the interview. She stated that she had a discussion about Donald Bull's failure to testify with a juror that she thinks was Betty Thompson. She was not sure when the discussion took place, but she believes it was near the end of the trial, after the jury learned that Bull would not be testifying. During the discussion, she and the other juror questioned why an innocent man would not testify, and Stephen Barry made a second statement. Exhibit 20. My name is Stephen Barry, and I was present during an interview with Kathy Holes, which took place at her home on August 19, 1998. I recall Kathy Holes discussing the following during the interview. A. She stated that during the trial, she observed that Donald Bull was left-handed by watching him write at the defense table. She stated that during deliberation, she pointed this observation out to the other jurors. She stated that she and the other members of the jury examined the crime scene photographs. She stated that by looking at the burn marks on the floor, she and the jury determined that the fire looked as if it was set by a left-handed person. As she stated this, she simultaneously made a flinging motion with her left hand as if she was spreading a liquid. She stated that the jurors discussed the fact that the photograph of Donna Tompkins' garage showed fuel containers. B. She stated that during the trial, Donald Bull's girlfriend testified that he had a reddish-brown stain on his jacket the morning after the fire. She stated that one of the jurors, a white-haired man, volunteered his opinion that the discoloration of the coat could have been caused by gas, not transmission fluid. C. She stated that the jurors discussed the fact that the photograph of Donald Tompkins' garage showed fuel containers and that Donald Bull could have used those to start the fire. D. She stated that she remembered that one of the jurors, which she believed was a male juror, commented on Donald Bull's failure to testify at trial and commented that an innocent person would have testified. As the Supreme Court discussion on Donald Bull's appeal began, it concerned only eight of the contended issues, and they were as follows. Number one, the search of Donnie's closed box in Hillmeyer's bedroom was unreasonable. Two, 
the questioning of a juror in his absence denied him several constitutional rights. And three, the evidence found was insufficient to prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Donnie also contended that he was denied a fair trial because the trial court, four, barred defense cross-examination of the prosecution DNA expert regarding his disciplinary record with the state police laboratory. And five, the court had admitted an out-of-court statement of Eleanor Price during her testimony and portions of the testimony on Johns Hopkins. Donnie contended, six, that he did not receive a fair sentencing hearing at the death eligibility phase because findings were not made as to the mental states required for death penalty eligibility. Donnie contended, seven, that the trial court erred by denying his several pro se post-trial motions without an evidentiary hearing. He also argued, eight, that the Illinois death penalty statute was unconstitutional because the death penalty would inevitably be applied to innocent persons, and the statute precluded meaningful consideration of mitigating circumstances. Ladies and gentlemen, we have already thoroughly discussed Appeal 1, the warrantless search of the closed box. But what about number 2, the defendant's absence from juror questioning? Donnie claimed that those attorneys were present during the hearing. The conference denied him several constitutional rights by preventing his presence, which would require him a new trial. The hearing was concerning juror four-person Catherine McCormick's conversation she had admittedly had the day after jury selection with a former co-worker who had unexpectedly come by her home. Having spoken of several topics, the two also discussed the trial. McCormick's friend told her that she had heard that Donnie had, quote, done this before, unquote. And when McCormick informed the judge of this conversation, she stated that she had failed to say, when asked during trial selection, that both she and her mother had been in battered relationships in the past. She later stated on the stand that she did not know if she could be impartial. Nonetheless, she was subsequently chosen as foreperson, which is questionable in itself. The Supreme Court initially agreed with the state that the issue be waived for review, as Donnie had never objected before the jury was sworn, stating, an accused man may not sit idly by, thus waiving the issue. The court also added that under Illinois Constitution, a criminal defendant is not denied constitutional right every time he is not present during his trial, but only when his absence is in such a case that plain error is committed. And though Donnie's reasons for contention were because he felt McCormick possessed knowledge of him outside of the record and had personal history and experiences that caused him to doubt her ability to be impartial, that his own first-hand observation of McCormick, that he could see how upset the juror had been and how she reacted to his presence, and that he would have been in a better seated position in the courtroom to judge whether the juror was likely to share her prejudicial information and experiences with the other jurors. The court responded, It is not necessarily that jurors be unaware of the case before they assume their roles in the jury box. Crimes, especially heinous crimes, are of great public interest and are extensively reported. It is unreasonable to expect that individuals of average intelligence, or at least average interest in their community, would not have heard of any cases in which they are called upon to judge in court. Total ignorance of the case is exceptional, and it is not required. What is required is the assurance that a juror will be able to set aside all information he has acquired outside of the courtroom, along with any opinions he has formed, and decide the case strictly on the evidence as presented in the courtroom. And ladies and gentlemen, despite McCormick's personal history and experiences, the court ruled that Donnie Bull, in fact, did not receive an impartial trial, specifically because he, Donald Bull, failed to show up for the hearing. Lastly, the court noted that in response to Donnie's claim 
that he was denied effective assistance of counsel, that Donnie had failed to prove a reasonable probability of counsel's unprofessional errors that resulted in any different outcome than that which had resulted as it had. The court decided that due to a lack of evidence, the court did not need to consider his counsel's performance, and thus concluded that Donnie had in fact not had his constitutional rights violated, nor had he had an impartial jury, a lack of due process of law, nor an ineffective assistance of counsel. Donnie's third charge was insufficient evidence. Donnie claimed that the evidence presented by the state was so improbable and unsatisfactory that it had failed to prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Donnie points out that the professional conflict with the prosecution's DNA expert, David Metzger, compromises testimony and that the DNA found in Donna's remains could be explained by the evidence that he and Donna had a sexual relationship before the murder. He also attacks the credibility of Crozer and Chester and the supposed identification of Donna's ring found in the closed box. Also, he points to evidence which he claims implicates David Haynes in the murders. However, the Supreme Court responded that it was not their function to retry the defendant. Instead, it was their function to find facts, to assess the credibility of witnesses, the weight to be given to their testimony, and the inference to be drawn from the evidence. But it was not their function to search out all possible explanations consistent with innocence and raise them to a level of reasonable doubt and that speculation that another person may have committed the offense did not necessarily quantify any less probable guilt of the accused. Stating that the defendant's arguments are for a jury, not for the Supreme Court. After reviewing the record in a light most favorable to the prosecution, the court could not say that the evidence was so improbable or unsatisfactory that no rational fact finder could have found the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of the crimes charged. As the court denied the appeal, ladies and gentlemen, you have become those rational fact finders. And it's up to you now, and you alone, to decide whether or not the state had proven Donnie Bull guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of those crimes charged. Charge 4. Donnie contended that he was denied a fair trial because the trial court barred the defense from cross-examining David Metzger, the prosecution DNA expert, regarding his disciplinary record with the state police crime laboratory. Ladies and gentlemen, if you remember, the state police had brought administrative charges against Metzger, accusing him of stealing a microscope in January of 1995. In May of 95, the state police and Metzger entered into a settlement agreement. It was agreed that the state police would not discharge Metzger, but discipline him with a 100-day suspension without pay, and that Metzger in turn would agree to perform 120 hours of community service and forfeit his accured vacation time. Donnie claimed that his Sixth Amendment right ensured him the right to cross-examine the witness regarding biases, interests, and motives to testify and Donnie stated that he had the right to show and inquire into the fact that David Metzger had been arrested or charged with a crime when it would be reasonable to show that the witness's criminal record might influence his testimony. In the present case, Donnie claimed that Metzger's criminal record in fact showed that he had the motive to testify falsely or embellish his testimony to please his employers, and that at the time of the trial, Metzger remained under a cloud of disgrace with the state police. He had perilous job security with the agency, and his poor standing increased the risk that negative critiques of his job performance would cause him to be fired. 
Therefore, Donnie reasoned that Metzger was strongly motivated to testify in a biased manner in defense of his performance. However, the court stated that Donnie's appeal was too speculative and remote to infer that Metzger had something to gain or lose by his testimony. Charge 5. Erroneously Admitted Evidence Donnie contended that a portion of Iona Price's and much of John Tompkins' testimony had been admitted by error. Donnie stated that by admitting into evidence an out-of-court statement of Iona Price that she repeated during testimony, that after she introduced Donnie and Donna, Iona warned Donna not to allow the defendant into her apartment if she were ever there alone. Donnie stating that this should have been inadmissible because it was irrelevant and prejudicial hearsay. The court waived the issue, stating that it was the fault of the defense counsel to object to this statement, and denied it was prejudicial because the evidence was closely balanced due to the fact that the record contained an abundance of evidence of the defendant's guilt, concluding that the issue did not warrant their consideration under the plain error doctrine. B. John Tompkins Donnie contended that the trial court erred by admitting into evidence much of the testimony of Donna's estranged husband, John as Donnie characterized much of his testimony as concerning the irrelevant, prejudicial aspects of his grief and his loving relationship with his daughter before her murder, basically stating that John's emotional response to their deaths did not in any way prove that Donnie was responsible. However, the court responded that his testimony was, in fact, admissible as relevant evidence of the victim's prior activities before their murder. The court also blamed the defense team for not objecting to those portions of Tompkins' testimony during the trial. Two errors in a row, ladies and gentlemen, that the court acknowledges just after claiming it had found no significant evidence of the failure of Donnie's counsel to provide a reasonable defense. Moving along. C. Brings us ironically enough to ineffective assistance of counsel. The court noted that Donnie's claim that his trial counsel was deficient failed to prove through evidence and conclude that the outcome of the trial had been altered by their performance, despite Donnie's thorough attempt to prove just that. Oxymorons abound, ladies and gentlemen, as astonishing as it is, and deserving of further dissection. For now, we shall move along. 6. Death Eligibility Donnie next contended that he was denied due process of law at the death penalty eligibility phase of the sentencing hearing because findings were not made as to the mental states required for death penalty eligibility, and that the statutory aggravating factor making a defendant eligible for the death penalty was that he had been convicted of murdering two or more individuals, an aggravating factor that included an intent requirement that either the defendant intended to kill more than one person or killed with the knowledge that his separate acts created a strong possibility of death or greater bodily harm. However, Donnie noted, though the trial jury was instructed as to whether all forms of murder were intentional, knowing, and felony murder, that the trial jury only returned a general verdict of guilt for each Donna and Justine, and not that any charge was actually done in aggravated form. Also that the sentencing judge found the presence of the aggravating factor by taking judicial notice of the murder convictions without any additional express finding as to intent. In other words, the judge took it on his own accord to deem the proposed act 
to have been done with aggravated intent, without the jury having found such intent in their verdict. And Donnie claimed that the submission of finding intent by the jury required a new sentencing hearing. As you might have guessed by now, ladies and gentlemen, the court disagreed, noting that the general guilty verdict was alone enough for the sentencing judge to make or create the sentence he so desired for Mr. Bull. And the Supreme Court determined that the defendant's argument must therefore fail. Seven, Donnie contended that the trial court erred by denying his pro se post-trial motions without any evidentiary hearing, with the record showing that the defendant filed several post-trial motions, including motions for a new trial, substitution of counsel, and delay of sentencing. The court concluded that the trial court adequately inquired into each of the defendant's allegations, and that although Donnie now contended that the trial court did nothing to ascertain whether the claims of ineffective assistance of counsel at trial were spurious or pertained to strategy, the court, however, fell back on the record once again to show that the trial court did, in fact, investigate the allegations and found that the motions were spurious and subsequently denied such motions and the court upheld the ruling. And number eight, the constitutionality of the death penalty statute and the inevitability of execution of innocent persons. Donnie claimed that the Illinois death penalty was unconstitutional because of the inevitability that innocent persons would be wrongly convicted of capital crimes and executed. As examples, Donnie pointed to several cases in which those defendants had been executed, and those in which defendants had been released from death row after they had been convicted of capital crimes and sentenced to death. He also argued that the irreparability of the death penalty makes the inevitability of error on the imposition of the death penalty constitutionally unacceptable. The state response described the many meaningful procedural safeguards that a criminal defendant enjoyed throughout the various stages of the judicial process, including trial, post-trial, direct appellate review, post-conviction, federal hubis corpus review, and executive clemency. Ladies and gentlemen, I honestly doubt anyone enjoys any of the various stages of the judicial process, and I feel I should add that these stages of the criminal process are complex and challenging to navigate, and for this very reason, it is advised that a defendant be appointed a forensic social worker, the same social worker in which the assistant state's attorney, Edward Parkinson, stated might as well be substituted by a good viewing of the 1995 American crime drama starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn entitled Dead Man Walking. The movie was based on two real-life convicted murderers, Elmo Patrick Sonner and Robert Lee Willie, both prisoners on death row in Louisiana who are visited by a spiritual advisor after corresponding with him. The plot of the movie goes as follows. Matthew Ponsley and Carl Vitello are both convicted and sentenced to death for the murder and rape of a teenage couple, and they have been on death row at the Louisiana State Penitentiary for six years, as Matthew, played by Penn, has a scheduled execution date that is quickly approaching. He asks sister Helen Prejean, played by Sarandon, with whom he has corresponded, to help him with a final appeal. Sister Helen decides to visit Ponsley, who is arrogant, sexist, and racist, and does not even pretend to feel remorse. He protests his innocence and insists Vitello is the one who actually killed the two teenagers. 
Convincing an experienced attorney to take on Poncelier's case pro bono, Sister Helen tries to have his sentence commuted to life imprisonment, and after many visits, she establishes a relationship with him. But at the same time, she gets to know Poncelier's mother, Lucille, as well as the families of the two victims. The victims' families do not understand Sister Helen's efforts to help Poncelier and claim that she is taking his side as they desire absolute justice, his life for those of their children. Sister Helen's application for commutation is refused, and Poncelier asks Sister Helen to be his spiritual advisor through his execution, and she agrees. Sister Helen tells Poncelier that his redemption is possible only if he takes responsibility for what he did. And just before he is taken from his cell, Poncelier tearfully admits to Sister Helen that he had killed the boy and raped the girl before Vitello killed her. And as he is prepared for execution, he appeals to the boy's father for forgiveness and tells the girl's parents that he hopes his death brings them peace. Poncelier is executed by lethal injection and given a proper burial. The murdered boy's father attends the funeral ceremony, and although he is still filled with hate, he soon begins to pray with Sister Helen. The film is a critical and commercial success, grossing $83 million. Susan Sarandon won an Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance, and the flick also won Best Original Song, respectively, for the hit single, Dead Man Walking. Though this movie was based on true crime, its success is based on the fact that it is none other than a movie, and the need for forensic social workers in real life can be invaluable as their duty is not only, if at all, to serve as a spiritual advisor to the accused, but to essentially, as stated, help them navigate the overwhelmingly complex chemistry of the judicial system, fraught with twists and turns, and inundated with legal jargon most if not all of us are entirely ignorant of, until that time might unfortunately come when we find ourselves accused of a crime. And Edward Parkinson admitted his ignorance of the significance of a forensic social worker, and he stated, quote, I just don't know what a forensic social worker is, so do we oppose it? Donnie expressed that no amount of procedural process can prevent all errors that can result in such a miscarriage of justice. Perjury, for example mistaken identifications, errors in forensic testing, racial bias, and countless other sources of factual error should remain despite the right to counsel, the confrontation clause, the right to an impartial jury, or the right to appeal in hebus corpus. And yes, in fact, despite a court-appointed forensic social worker, as Donnie said, errors will occur. It is human nature, ladies and gentlemen, and we are all human. the court did not see it the same way, stating that an essential goal of the criminal justice process is the protection of innocent accused against erroneous conviction and that many would argue that it is in fact their goal of the highest priority. Also, that there is an extreme interest in the accuracy of a criminal proceeding that places an individual's life and liberty at risk, adding that the many safeguards the law had developed over the years to diminish the risk of erroneous conviction stands as a testament to that concern. So what do you think, ladies and gentlemen? Was Donnie's conviction 100% erroneous free? Do those testament safeguards diminish the risk to an appropriate degree that you, ladies and gentlemen, would feel secure in the hands of the state? 
The court admitted that whatever the number of safeguards in the system, the American criminal justice process is necessarily imperfect because it is indeed operated by people like you and I, and as people, we are imperfect. Nonetheless, the court went on to say it remained one of the best in the world, and it was, after all, the only system we have, and that the United States Supreme Court had held that the death penalty is not a form of punishment that may ever be imposed regardless of the circumstances of the offense, the character of the offender, and the procedure followed in reaching the decision to impose it. Take that any way you may, ladies and gentlemen, as the court went on to state that though one might be tempted to accept the defendant's argument that the Illinois death penalty statute is unconstitutional because innocent persons will inevitably be convicted of capital crimes, sentenced to death, and executed, the court states that it must be remembered that Donnie's argument did not address the issue of procedural deficiency in the criminal justice system. Stressing that, Donnie argued that no amount of procedural due process would prevent all the risks that could result in an innocent person being convicted of a capital crime. Thus, the defendant's stridus protest was against the concept of the Anglo-American criminal trial itself as the means of determining guilt or innocence of an accused, and that the explicit attack on the American criminal trial as the means of determining guilt required a discussion of fundamental principles, stating, the system that the criminal justice system in America uses to deal with those crimes it cannot prevent, and those criminals it cannot deter, is not monolithic, nor even a content system. It was not designed or built one piece at a time. It is philosophic at its core, so that a person might be punished by the government if and only if it had been proved by an impartial and deliberate process that he had in fact violated a specific law. Around that core, layer upon layer of institutions and procedures, some inspired by principles and some inspired by expediency, have accumulated, the entire system representing and adapted to English common law and to America's peculiar structure of government. Stating, quote, In this country, in this state, a defendant has a constitutional right to have the charges brought against him proven beyond a reasonable doubt. The forum for such determination is a trial. The determination of guilt or innocence in a criminal trial is a decisive event. Society's resources have been concentrated at that time and place to decide, within the limits of human fallibility, the question of guilt and innocence of one of its citizens. And continuing on, that the purpose of a trial was to have a witness and evidence against the defendant put before the trier of fact so they can be tested by way of cross-examination, the belief being that the truth will become apparent as a result of this process. At the trial, the defendant had the opportunity to call witnesses on his own behalf and to testify should the defendant choose to do so. Additional features of the American criminal justice system include the presumption of innocence, the right of the defendant not to testify on his own behalf, the right of effective assistance of counsel, and the exclusion of evidence illegally obtained by the state. Ladies and gentlemen, as you remember from the juror's statements, Donnie had greatly been deemed guilty due to his choice to exercise his right not to testify on his own behalf. So what do you think, ladies and gentlemen, of Donnie's Anglo-American criminal trial, where no amount of procedural due process could prevent all errors that could result from preventing an innocent person from being convicted of a capital crime? Where no amount of procedural due process could prevent all errors that could result from preventing an innocent person from being convicted of a capital crime by an impartial and deliberate process beyond a reasonable doubt. 
had the trial been a decisive event, concentrated at that time and place within the limits of human fallibility in determining Donnie's guilt or innocence, allowing Donnie his full right to cross-examine, to refrain from testifying on his own behalf, and had the truth been allowed to become apparent in doing so. Was Donnie truly allowed the presumption of innocence? Was Donnie's right to an effective counsel fulfilled? And was all the evidence illegally obtained by the police excluded by the state? As a criminal defendant, whether guilty or innocent, was Donnie's trial fair? Was his trial truly impartial? What do you think? What do you feel in your gut as the court states? It is an unalterable fact that our judicial system, like the human beings who administer it, is fallible and that trials cannot be conducted without error, and that perfection in trial procedure is virtually unattainable. Stating, fundamentally, that a defendant in a criminal case is indeed provided with a fair trial, not a perfect one, as that is not tangible nor possible. And the court decides that the defendant's complaint that simply because the American criminal trial in determining guilt and innocence is not perfect enough does not justifiably prove that the death penalty system is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court decides that as imperfect as Donnie may describe the system, the defendant did not suggest a substitute for the system as the means of determining guilt and innocence. Therefore, in a sense, the very question presented is unanswerable. Have mistakes been made, they ask? Will mistakes be made? Certainly, the court states. Again, quoting the court, the American criminal justice system regards the trial as the best method for determining a defendant's guilt. Yet, a trial is not a scientific process. Instead of calm, consistent evaluations of evidence, trials involve unpredictable human perceptions and reactions. Trials are very human processes, and the truth is not guaranteed to emerge in the final verdict. Death Without Truth And the court states that the American criminal justice system, like perhaps no other system in the world, does in fact provide the maximum protection necessary to guard against mistakes being made and those deaths, minus truth. But ladies and gentlemen, truth as that may be, is that alone quite enough? What significantly distinguishes the criminal justice system from one country from that of another, the court states is the extended and the form of the protection it offers individuals in the process of determining guilt and imposing punishment. Our system of justice deliberately sacrifices much efficiency and even ineffectiveness in order to protect the individual. In fact, sometimes it may seem too much, the court proclaims. Too much? 
when it comes to making a stringent effort to prevent the execution of an innocent man by the hands of the state, just where do we draw the line? And how is it that we determine where that line should be drawn in order to state, sometimes it may seem too much? If protecting the innocent equates to the seizing up of the engine of the criminal justice machine, how do we quantify the percentage or number of innocents we are willing to sacrifice to get that machine running again? This answer undoubtedly comes down to who it is coming from and on which side of the courtroom they are sitting. Going on, the court adds that based on the Illinois Constitution, the court recognizes that a defendant's right against self-incrimination is violated when the police deny an attorney, along with physical access to the defendant during the interrogation and whether police do not inform the defendant that the attorney is seeking to consult with her. This brings to mind Donnie's appointed lawyer's foolhardy attempts to speak with their client while Donnie was under a prison-wide lockdown at Statesville during pretrial, a time when strategy is determined and communication is most consequential. And ladies and gentlemen, Donnie's trial court had even acknowledged that Sergeant David Ayers and Detective Marty Bowden had in fact violated Donnie's constitutional rights through illegal imprisonment in a locked room and a forced interrogation without informing him of his Miranda rights along with continuing to question him after he had clearly stated that his lawyer had requested that he not speak with the police in his absence. What do you think? Had it been likely that this was the only time that Donnie's rights had been violated? With all that emotion behind that mood-filled investigation and prosecutorial process, which had resulted in said violation of Donnie's rights, had that willful violation solely been contained to that one event? The court states that a trial's true and primary purpose is to determine truth. That same truth that is not necessarily required to present itself before a sentencing of death. Nevertheless, the court goes on to say, it is a fundamental value determination of the American criminal justice system that it is far worse to convict an innocent person than to let a guilty person go free. But ultimately determining that, since Donnie's unanswerable protest was against the inherent fallibility of the American criminal trial, his position had been reduced to a mere attack on the death penalty per se, the court stating he felt that it was wrong and that it should not be imposed. He notes that other inferior communal justice systems have abolished capital punishment. However, the United States Supreme Court has repeatedly rejected the convention that the imposition of the death penalty under any circumstance is cruel and unusual punishment. It is now settled that the death penalty is not inadvertently cruel and unusual punishment, and it is not inherently barbaric. Thus, it is clear that the defendant's personal views regarding the death penalty or capital punishment is all that is reflected, adding, one must be careful not to elevate personal beliefs above thoughtful constitutional analysis. The question of whether it is enlightened to assert the ultimate penalty against those who commit the most heinous of crimes is simply not subject to our review. Therefore, in determining the constitutionality of the death penalty, we have made the decision that the punishment is valid. Conclusion For the foregoing reasons, 
the judgment of the Circuit Court of Fulton County is affirmed. The clerk of this court is directed to enter an order to be imposed. The defendant shall be executed in the manner provided by law. Ladies and gentlemen, as the court had stated, one might be tempted to argue that the Illinois death penalty statute is unconstitutional because innocent persons will inevitably be convicted of capital crimes, sentenced to death, and executed. And in fact, well, one had made that exact argument. Justice Moses Harrison II of the Illinois Supreme Court in a dissenting opinion. In his own words, my colleagues turn aside defendant's constitutional challenge with the observation that the American criminal justice system is one of the best in the world. The sentiment has a pleasant and reassuring tone, but it overlooks an important fact. The supposedly inferior justice systems of other nations are abandoning capital punishment at an unprecedented rate. With the exception of Japan, the United States is now the only well-established democracy that has not abolished the death penalty, expressly or in practice. Western Europe is free of capital punishment, as are most countries in our hemisphere. Even in the United States, 12 states in the District of Columbia presently have no death penalty for any offense, no matter how severe. I do not know enough about international law to judge whether the nations who have abolished criminal punishment are in fact less protective of individual human rights than the courts in the United States. I do know, however, that the abolitionist nations have at least ensured that no one will pay the ultimate price for their fallibility. That is decidedly not the case in those United States jurisdictions retaining the death penalty, including Illinois. Despite the court's efforts to fashion a death penalty scheme that is just, fair, and reliable, the system is not working. Innocent people are being sentenced to death. Examples of innocent people who were arrested, tried, and convicted of capital offenses are numerous and well documented. In Illinois, the best known case of an individual wrongly convicted of capital murder and sentencing to death row is that of Rolando Cruz, who was actually convicted and given the death sentence twice before being found innocent in 1995. In 1996, Vernal Jimerson and Dennis Williams were exonerated after being convicted and sentenced to death for the 1978 murders of Larry Lyonberg and Carl Shamal. The same year, Gary Gauger, who had been placed on death row for the murder of his parents, was set free after his conviction was reversed based on insufficient evidence. Also in 1996, Carl Lawson was acquitted of his second retrial after having been sentenced to death for the murder of an eight-year-old child. In 1994, Joseph Burrow was released after spending five years on death row for the murder of William Dunlin, a crime he did not commit. Finally, in 1987, Perry Cobb and Darby Williams were eventually acquitted after having been previously convicted and sentenced to death for the 1977 double murder of Melvin Cantor and Charles Gushin. Some would suggest that the freedom now enjoyed by these nine men demonstrates that our criminal justice system is working effectively with adequate safeguards. If there had been only one or two wrongful death penalty sentences, I might be persuaded to accept that view. When there have been so many mistakes in such a short span of time, however, the only conclusion I can draw is that the system does not work as the Constitution requires it to. 
Justice Harrison is willing to draw the line at one or two. And he goes on to state, If these men dodged their executioner, it was only because of luck and dedication of the attorneys, reporters, family members, and volunteers who labored to win their release. They survived despite the criminal justice system, not because of it. The truth is that, left to the devices of the court system, they would have probably all ended up dead at the hands of the state for crimes they did not commit. One must wonder how many others have not been so fortunate. The prognosis for wrongly accused defendants facing capital charges is not improving. To the contrary, legislators and courts appear to have abandoned any genuine concern with ensuring the fairness and reliability of the system, achieving finality in death cases, and doing so as expeditiously as possible, have become the dominant goals in death penalty jurisprudence. Not so long ago, the federal courts provided meaningful oversight to the way in which state courts exercise their authority to put people to death. That oversight has all but disappeared. For all practical purposes, the states have been left to their own devices. Based on recent experience in Illinois, the consequences are apt to be grave. The General Assembly has drastically shortened the period in which post-conviction relief can be sought, hereby reducing the time in which exonerating evidence may be discovered. The number of death cases is rising, the pace of executions is quickening, and our court, which is responsible for reviewing all cases in which the death penalty is imposed, has demonstrated an unfortunate willingness to disregard the law in order to affirm a sentence of death. I note, moreover, that it apparently no longer feels constrained to follow its own rules of court, even when they are jurisdictional and mandatory. The result, inevitably, will be that innocent persons are going to be sentenced to death and executed in Illinois. A sentencing scheme which permits such horrific and irrevocable results cannot meet the requirements of the 8th and 14th Amendments of the United States Constitution. If this is the best our state can do, we have no business sending people to their deaths. As outraged as we may feel personally over the terrible acts committed by the defendant in this case, that is no justification for perpetuating a system that violates our most basic constitutional principles. Before any of us gets too righteous about what a despicable character defendant is, we should also stop for a moment and reflect on how easy it was to condemn an individual such as Rolando Cruz, who was ultimately determined to be innocent. My colleagues are decent and good people. Just as the execution of an innocent person is inevitable, it is inevitable that one day the majority will no longer be able to deny that the Illinois death penalty scheme, as presently administered, is profoundly unjust. When that day comes, as it must, my colleagues will see what they have allowed to happen, and they will feel ashamed. Donald Bull's conviction should be affirmed, but his sentence of death should be vacated, and the cause should be remanded to the circuit court for imposition of a sentence other than death. November 11, 1998, the Peoria Journal-Star. Supreme Court upholds death sentence. Bull's case ruling includes separate anti-death penalty opinion by Harrison. Springfield, in a strongly worded opinion, 
filed separately from the majority ruling. Justice Moses Harrison II agreed with the majority in upholding Bull's conviction. But he said Bull's death sentence should be thrown out because the Illinois death penalty system is prone to error and inevitably will result in the execution of innocent people. Despite the court's efforts to fashion a death penalty that is just, fair, and reliable, the system is not working, Harrison wrote. Innocent people are being sentenced to death. And in a majority opinion written by Chief Justice Charles Freeman, the court said it disagreed with Bull's contention that he should have a new trial. Bull's state appellate defender Stephen Clark offered several arguments as to why Bull should be retried. For instance, Clark said Bull was denied an impartial trial and that the death penalty is unconstitutional because it is inevitable that an innocent person will be executed. Harrison's opinion went along with that. Before any of us gets too righteous about what a despicable character Bull is, we should stop for a moment and reflect on how easy it was to condemn an individual such as Rolando Cruz, who was ultimately determined to be innocent, Harris wrote. This is not to suggest that Bull was actually not guilty either. My point is that when a system is as prone to error as ours, we should not be making irrevocable decisions about any human life. Freeman's majority opinion acknowledged that the U.S. criminal justice system process is necessarily imperfect because it is operated by people, and people are imperfect. Nonetheless, it remains one of the best in the world and the only system we have. Harrison, however, wrote, It's no answer to say that we are doing the best we can. If this is the best our state can do, we have no business sending people to their deaths. In another separately written opinion from Justice Benjamin Miller of Springfield, he concurred with the majority and took issue with Harrison's sharp words. Harrison frequently chooses, as he does in this case, to impugn the integrity of the other members of this court and to impute improper motives to those whom with he disagrees, Miller writes. Baseless and unfounded imputations of improper motives to those members of the court who support a majority opinion are unjustified and mean to the court. Chicago Tribune Death penalty rift opens on the state high court. An Illinois Supreme Court justice wrote a blistering dissent condemning the death penalty, calling the state's handling of capital cases profoundly unjust, and saying that the execution of an innocent person is inevitable. When that day comes, as it must, my colleagues will see what they have allowed to happen, and they will feel ashamed, Justice Moses W. Harrison II wrote. Harrison's opinion was reminiscent of the lonely but stirring dissents that U.S. Supreme Court Justices Thurgood Marshall and William Brennan routinely made in death penalty cases, unsuccessfully exhorting their colleagues to rule that capital punishment has no place in the United States. But Harrison's dissent marked the first time a current member of the state's highest court had made such a plea, and that sometimes harsh wording by Harrison's opinion triggered responses from his fellow justices that occasionally ventured past disagreement over legal issues and into personal balking. Harrison's opinion and the responses to it turned a double murder case out of Fulton County into a forum on the death penalty, in which four of the Supreme Court's seven members wrote about society's ultimate punishments. The court's opinion also served as something of a curtain raiser for a conference on wrongful convictions that will take place this weekend at Northwestern University School of Law. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. The questionable nature of Donnie Bull's trial, right out of little old Fulton County, 
had inspired a forum on the death penalty. A curtain raiser, the Tribune called it, for a conference about society's ultimate punishment. And that conference would bring together many of the 74 people in the United States who had been sentenced to death, then exonerated and freed. In his opinion, Harrison noted, Illinois had many such cases itself. He listed nine men in recent years who had been exonerated after being condemned to death row. If these men dodged their executioner, he said, stating that they survived despite the criminal justice system, not because of it. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, a demonstration of just how shaky the foundation of the state's case against Donnie Bull had been. A case that trial judge Henderson had called one of the best tried cases he had ever seen. This begs me to question, what exactly does that say for any or all, for that matter, of the other cases Judge Henderson had proceeded over during his long career? And indeed, I certainly wonder how many others had not been so fortunate before the Illinois death penalty had been abolished on March 9, 2011. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror, the motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart, storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. At Radio Verte, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? 
And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer, tag-along Mark Walter, and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter, just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.